0: One of the most precious pieces of theological writing that the church has ever produced in all of its 2,000 years is question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. We just recited it a few minutes ago, but let me read it to you again. The question is asked What is your only comfort? Your only comfort in life and in death. And remember, this is how the entire catechism, with its hundred or so questions begins this is question number 1 what is your only comfort in life and in death my only comfort in all things is that i am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior jesus christ not he belongs to me, but because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Heidelberg, number one, is such a personal question, isn't it? It's striking how the writers of that catechism framed even their approach to their work the question doesn't ask an abstract question about God or about man or about God's decrees or about the inerrancy of the scripture or whatever it might have begun with rather it asks this deeply personal question it goes straight to our hearts and it lays them open it says what is your only comfort what is it in all the world Alone, that gives you, Christian, confidence and hope and peace and joy. And, and, and notice what it doesn't say in answer to that question. What gives me comfort? It doesn't say, what gives me comfort is the right person in the White House or in the Senate or the Supreme Court. It doesn't say, what gives me comfort is a strong economy. It doesn't say, what gives me comfort is enough money in my bank account to make sure I'll always have protection against need. It doesn't say uh, what gives me comfort is is my good health or the good health of my loved ones. It doesn't say my comfort is that no one will ever leave me or no one whom I love will ever die. It doesn't say that my comfort is a, a successful and enjoyable marriage. It doesn't say my comfort is fulfilling friendships or not being lonely ever. It doesn't say my comfort is happy and well-adjusted children who are making a good uh, uh, attempt in the world for themselves. It doesn't say my comfort is success and fulfillment and all my work. It doesn't say my comfort is that everything I do, all my hard work and sacrifice and service is appreciated by others as it should be. None of those things are mentioned. Not even one. Friends, finding our comfort, our confidence, our hope in our outward circumstances, those things I've just listed and many others, that leads to disappointment 100% of the time because those outward circumstances are always changing, always. They never remain the same. They can't in this life. They're always waxing or waning, always in flux. Even, friends, if you somehow get everything uh, just where you think, yes, that's right, that's where it needs to be. My work, my family, my life, my health. It doesn't last. It falls apart. And I think we all know what that disappointment feels like when those things happen. Right? We're familiar with it. All of us are intimately acquainted with what happens when we look for our comfort and our health or our relationships or our success or whatever it might be. Right? Fill in the blank. And the disappointment that comes when things fall apart, as they always do. And in those moments when things change, when things fall apart, when our life moves in a direction that we had not anticipated or we, we didn't expect or, or we didn't hope for. It, it's so easy in those moments to put our disappointment on God, right? As though in, in all the changes of our circumstance that we're experiencing, God has somehow given us a raw deal, right? He somehow let us down. He's failed to keep his promise to us. But friend, what if God has actually not promised to keep everything good all the time, everything the same, to not let our lives fall apart? What if God has actually promised to give us only one circumstance in our life that does not change, that will never change, that can't change, and that One solitary, unchanging circumstance is designed by him to be where our only comfort is actually found. Friends, that unchanging circumstance that is given to us, that God has actually promised to us, of course, is our union with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ. That's where the Heidelberg rightly locates our only comfort, and life and death, because we belong to Jesus, because he has claimed us for his own, because God, by his Spirit, has joined and sealed us to his Son forever. That doesn't change. No matter what, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, even when everything else does. Friends, not even death can take away our union with Jesus. Because our bodies, though they die, remain united to the living Christ, even in the grave. Indeed, our only comfort, our only comfort, not one of many comforts, our only sure, reliable comfort in life and in death is, as the Heidelberg rightly puts it, that we belong not to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ, That we belong to Jesus, the risen Son of God who has himself already conquered sin and death and Satan. That is the circumstance that doesn't change. The only circumstance that doesn't change, by the way. The only circumstance in our lives that can't change, that will never change. And by faith, that is where our comfort lies, our joy, our hope, our confidence And this dynamic between our outward changing circumstances and the actual steadfast, unchanging circumstance of our union with Jesus, this reality, this dynamic is on display in this fascinating psalm this morning. The context of Psalm 59 is, of course, deeply important for understanding its meaning. I alluded to this already this morning and reading from First Samuel 19. You see this psalm, as it tells us intentionally, so that we would know the context in which it was written. It comes at a time when David's outward circumstances were changing rapidly and not for the better. Right? This psalm is written at a time when David's life was quickly falling apart. You see, after David defeated Goliath, in 1 Samuel 17 and won a great battle for Israel against the Philistines, he was elevated in a moment from anonymity to fame. Right Overnight, he became wealthy and powerful and successful beyond anything he could have imagined. Right, one day, at the beginning of First Samuel 17, David is the youngest son of a middling family from Bethlehem of all places, right, bringing his older brothers food cheese to be specific for the battle because they're hungry and, and literally the next day all the women of Israel the text tells us are coming out of the cities and do you know whose name is on their lips David 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 that's what they're singing they're singing his name and in, in, in quick succession um, David is made commander of Israel's armies He's given the daughter of the king, Macau, in marriage. He receives from the king a home and a place at court and wealth. And things are pretty good then for a couple of years. David flourishes in this new role. But then, as we heard, from 1 Samuel 19, earlier this morning, things begin to change. All that God has given David, he now begins to take away from him. And make no mistake, God is the one behind all of this. The text makes that very clear. God elevates David. God is the one who sent Samuel out of the blue from David's perspective. And Chapter 16 and anoints him to be king of Israel one day. God is the one who is with David and defeats Goliath. God is the one who gives him all of these things. And then God is the one who sends the harmful spirit to Saul and takes all these things away. Saul turns against David in a fit of rage and anger and temper, tries to kill David with a spear. David just barely escapes, right? That the spear is there, you know, throbbing in the wall next to him. He goes back to his house, but that's not a place of safety either because that very night Saul sends soldiers to surround David's house so they can rush in and kill him in the morning. Remember, just before all of this happened, David was the commander of the king's armies. He was leading these Men in battle against their enemies. And now those very same men who had been David's brothers are going to kill him. And so David escapes out of a window. He's reduced to that. Under the cover of darkness, his wife creates this sort of dummy in the bed. So that the soldiers will be deceived a little bit longer. He escapes with his life, but he loses, in swift passage of time, everything else. All of it. In just a period of about 24 hours, David loses everything. He loses his wife. He loses his home. He can't go back. He doesn't go back. He loses his possessions. He loses his position. He loses his sense of security and safety that he had before. He loses his friends, his brothers in arms. But even in the midst of all that, notice as we see in the psalm what David does not lose. He does not lose his comfort or his hope or his joy because he knows that the only circumstance in his life that ultimately matters is still the same. God remains his strength and his fortress even in the midst of all of these things. All of this. That hasn't changed. And because of that, David is comforted and sings for joy. Let me show you what I mean in the text of the psalm. Our psalm this morning, it breaks pretty easily um, into a, a pretty clear structure. First, there are two parts. There's verses 1 to 10 and then Verses 11 to 17. You can see that pretty easily, I think, as you look at it on the page. And, and both parts follow the same pattern. There's a lot of repetition here in this psalm. The same pattern in verses 1 to 10 appears in verses 11. First, there's a series of petitions that opens both sections. First in verses 1 to 5, and then similar petitions are given in verses 11 to to 13. Then there's this poetic description of David's enemies in verses 6 and 7, and then in verses 14 and 15. And then finally, there's this assertion of comfort and joy and hope that has many of the same repeated words and elements in verses 8 to 10, and then again in verses 16 to 17. This pattern, right? Petition. Description of enemies, assertion of hope. It repeats itself twice in this psalm. Let me walk through that briefly with you and show you what I mean. First, in verses 1 to 5, David is petitioning God to save him from his enemies. Right, This section, and also verses 11 to 13, this, this section is full of imperatives. God is asking i mean, sorry, David is asking God to do something, to intervene in his time of crisis and need, right? Deliver me from my enemies. So the psalm begins in verse one. Protect me from those who rise up against me. He's, he's petitioning God. Awake, O God, he says, and meet me. That's what he says in verse four. And in verse five, he says to God, rouse yourself. Don't spare any of those who were treacherously plotting evil. The same emphasis shows up in verses 11 to 13. Here we see another series of petitions where David is asking God to deliver him by bringing down his enemies. And then in verses 6 and 7 and 14 and 15, following those petitions... We have David then giving this poetic description of his enemies with almost the same language. In fact, verses 6 and verse 14 are identical, exactly the same. David compares his enemies to wild dogs. They're like beasts. They're lashing out against him. They're uncontrollable by his own power. He says every evening they come back, howling like dogs, prowling about the city. And you can see just even from the context in 1 Samuel 19, that that sounds like Saul throwing the spear against the wall. That sounds like those men surrounding his home in the darkness. And then in verses 9 to 10 and 16 to 17, we have what I think is the most interesting part of this psalm. Because it's here that David expresses with striking boldness, his confidence and his hope in God in the midst of his situation, which, objectively speaking, is pretty terrible. This is what David writes in the midst of all of this. In verses 9 to 10, he says, Oh, my strength. Oh, my strength, he says. He calls God by that name. Oh, my strength. I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And then in verses 16 and 17, he concludes the psalm with these words. He says to God again, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, that same address again, that same name for the Lord. O oh, my strength, I will praise you. For you, O oh, God are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. You see, in these verses, David emphasizes three things in relationship to God, even as the soldiers file in the darkness to surround his house and threaten his life, even as he is in the process of losing all the things that God has given him. Three things in these Two short passages. First, he calls God his strength again and again. Second, he describes the Lord as his fortress or his refuge, his safe place, his castle, his home, we might say. Third, he identifies God as the one who shows him even in the midst of all that is taking place his chesed, his steadfast love, right? Not just his love, but his steadfast love, his love that doesn't change, that won't change, that can't change. His strength, his fortress, and his love. That's how he describes God in the midst of this place. It's it's striking the way that David uses the language of strength here for God. He doesn't notice this, he doesn't just describe God as his strength right, in some sort of detached way, right? I'm here, God is my strength. He refers to God by direct, rather he, he speaks to God rather, by direct address. And twice he calls him by name and says, oh my strength. As though my strength were another name for God. Friends, there's such deep intimacy in addressing God this way, right? Think about that for a minute. Like, What if you actually called God by those words, by that phrase, right? What if sometimes instead of beginning your prayers with Almighty God or Heavenly Father or Father or God, you simply addressed him as, oh, my strength, and then went into your prayer, oh, my strength. I mean, that's language of dependence, isn't it? That's language of need. It's acknowledging that you're not strong and of yourself. That's language of intimacy. Oh, my strength. David speaks to God with those words. It's interesting, even ironic, that David describes God as his fortress here, his refuge. Remember, David's earthly fortress, so to speak, his physical fortress, his home, his actual refuge is presently surrounded by soldiers who want to kill him. His home, his fortress It's no longer a place of safety or refuge. It's actually now become a death trap that he has to get out of. But but still, even though the safety of his own home is being stripped from him, and think of how violating that is, right? Your home, the place where you feel safe, is being taken. It's a place of danger. In that place, David is calling God his fortress and his refuge. He's he's recognizing that no matter what takes place regarding his earthly fortress, God remains his safe place, his place of safety, his tower, his refuge, his castle. And finally, in this portion of the psalm, David identifies this Time in his life, these moments where he is losing all that he has been given as the place where he knows the steadfast love of God. And noticeably, again, he doesn't refer to God's love here in some just sort of abstract, generic way. No, rather in verse 10 he says, My God and his steadfast love will meet me, will draw near to me, will come to me. And in verse 17, he says to God, You are the God who shows me steadfast love, who is showing it even now, is the emphasis David is making, is revealing it even in this moment. Right? David, notice this is important. He isn't just reflecting back on the good times in his life, right? That moment when he had the sword and, and Goliath was dead at his feet or the time when he was returning from the battle and the women of Israel were singing his name. He isn't just reflecting back on the good times and saying, well, I know God's steadfast love is true because he was good to me back then. No, he's saying God's steadfast love is being shown to me now. Even now, as I'm losing everything, as I'm losing my position and my power and my family and my home, even in this place, David is saying, God is meeting me And showing me with his steadfast love. One thing that's fascinating here, I think, is that if God had not given David a position of influence and wealth and home and a wife, David wouldn't actually at this moment be feeling the pain of losing all of it, right? God did all this. He took David from the youngest son of this small family that no one had heard of, and he lifted him up. And now he's taking it away. the The difficult circumstances that David is in wouldn't have been wouldn't have been in existence if God hadn't given him the good circumstances that had led up to this moment. Yet here in this place, David's cry to God is not wishing that God had had just let him be, just kept him as a anonymous shepherd boy in Bethlehem but he he's proclaiming God's steadfast love still the same love that that raised him up is with him in his time of loss now God is doing all of it God has brought David up and now he is bringing David down and in all these changes in David's outward circumstances God is teaching David something that in his fundamental circumstance Nothing has changed at all. It remains the same. In the midst of all these changes, even this present loss, God is teaching David to say in a way that perhaps he wouldn't have said before. God is my strength. God is my fortress. God is the one who shows me, who meets me with steadfast, unchangeable love. Or, to put it another way, God is using these changes in David's circumstance, these losses he is experiencing, to teach David to say in a new and deeper way, my only comfort in all things is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, In life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing for David here. And I would suggest, beloved, that that is exactly what God is doing in your life as well. He's been doing it, He's doing it now. He will continue to do it until the day of your death when you pass into glory. He is teaching you to say, my only comfort in all things is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That alone, that alone is my comfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray that you might encourage us and help us by your Spirit to reflect even more deeply on this psalm in the days and weeks ahead that we might know that our only comfort in all things is that we belong to, to your Son, that we have been united to him. And that will never change. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.